This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... Can I please have your attention? Listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I am back from our retreat in an undisclosed location. It was gangbusters and fun and great, and um, I don't think I have the same sort of a late night revelers voice that I had on Saturday morning. Um, and since I need to sort of dive back into wonkery, since there was very little wonkery. Um, at the dispatch retreat, uh, I decided to have uh, my friend and colleague from AEI. He's the head of the econ department at EEI. He's uh, he's what um, Edmund Burke would call a sophister and a calculator. And um, uh, he reduces all of the loveliness and humanity of life into um, uh, a strict uh, uh, profit loss calculation. And, um, um, he's exactly what, uh, what, what Russ Roberts is trying to get away from in his, uh, um, trying to look at the, the, the more transcendent things in life. And I'm being grotesquely unfair, but I like to bait him. Man does live by bread alone. <laughs> uh, and, uh, he is of course a frequent guest on the podcast and he's going to do most of the talking today. Uh, Michael Strain, welcome back to the remnant. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be back. Man does live by bread alone. That should be our theme. Uh, where to start? So there's uh, the Fed is going to do things tomorrow. They're going to open up some oxen and decide what the interest rate should be. All the shoeshine guys near the Treasury Department and the Fed that I've dropped some Benjamins on tell me it's going to be uh, uh, 0.75, uh, three basis. What is it? 75, uh, 0.75. Um you make economic words go now. <laughs> What's going on with the economy? What's going on with interest rates? Is inflation? Uh, are we? St- is anybody still talking about transitory versus the other thing with inflation? What's going on? Um, I think that there has been a a kind of growing uh, convergence between the Fed's view of the economy and of the future path of the economy. Um, between the kind of economics commentariat's view of the economy and of the path of the economy and uh, 
the underlying reality uh, that we that we are that we are seeing. Um, you know, for for most of the last uh, year and a half, um, uh, there's been a substantial divergence, uh, and so people, you know, as recently as a year ago, we're still talking about inflation as if it were a transitory phenomenon, you know, which which is one of those words that that means different things to different people. But uh, I think the kind of gist of it was inflation is temporary, meaning short lived. Inflation is driven by one off factors like uh, you know, a shortage of computer chips or or, or you know, what have you. Um, uh, and that, you know, this was not going to be a, a longer term problem. It, you know, we don't have a situation where inflation is entrenched in the economy. Um, you, you, you hear that a whole lot less now. Uh, the Fed um, was conducting monetary policy as if that were the case uh, by continuing to, to juice the housing market, by purchasing mortgage-backed securities uh, as recently as, as a few months ago. Um, uh, and by keeping interest rates very low and by projecting that interest rates weren't going to end up going very high, you know, that that we've we've kind of moved beyond that, which is which has been progress. Um, the Fed's forecasts of uh, how the economy was likely to unfold, um, you know, I, I mean, I would use the word I would use the word uh, uh, ridiculous, I think, to describe them, um, uh, which uh, Jonah, as you know, uh, is. You know, I'm usually more even tempered than that, but the Fed was the Fed was forecasting um, what you might call an immaculate disinflation, where you would see uh, inflation return to the Fed's two percent target, but where you wouldn't see an increase in the unemployment rate. Uh, so you would have inflation returning to the Fed's target, but that wouldn't be accompanied by a broader slowdown in economic activity. It wouldn't be accompanied by an increase in the number of people who want a job but can't find one. You know that was that was really, I think, a, a, a very kind of fanciful, uh, not credible um, forecast. The Fed has moved off that, uh, but the Fed is still, I think, not where where it needs to be. Um, and I think there's still, you know, not an adequate recognition among among commentators and among and among the Fed for for the, the scope of the challenge that the economy faces and for the severity of, of, of the measures that are going to, that are going to be required um, to, to get prices under control uh, and to kind of bring uh, economic demand into, into closer alignment with, um, with, uh, with supply. I'm not one of you fancy economists who wear belts and pants, you know, live indoors and pants or have weird pinging sounds coming out of their computer. But how do I get etiquette? Well, let's do it just sort of as a basic economics question first. I think I understand this part fairly well. You've got the Fed judiciously, almost by committee, weighing everything, pouring over prices of pork bellies and the flaps of butterfly wings in Indonesia to figure out how to fine tune these you know, doohickeys with the whatchamacallits to raise interest rates. You take the chicken entrails and you put a little paprika. Right. Then you have the Biden administration and the Democratic-controlled Congress just simply taking pitchforks of money and shoving it into the economy. Isn't this a little bit like judiciously sort of trying to tap the brakes with one foot and slamming down on the gas pedal with the other, or am I missing something? No, that's right. I mean, part one of, one of the many challenges that the Fed faces um, is the fact that uh, that that fiscal policy that the president and 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 the Congress 
are are working in opposition of the Fed's goals. Um, and that's you know in our in our system, uh, and and really in 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 every uh, you know uh, important sense in in other uh, advanced economies as well. It's the Fed's job to keep inflation under control, and um, that's the way it should be. And uh, there are all sorts of reasons for that that we can get into if if you'd like to. Um, but at the end of the day, when prices are too high, when prices are growing too quickly, the Fed the Fed needs to bring them down. And we don't normally talk about inflation when we're debating laws the president wants to pass or policies the president wants to wants or or Congress want to um, want to 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 enact. Uh, you know, if when President Trump wanted to do a big tax cut in 2017, there was some talk about, you know, what that might do to stimulate the economy, but nobody was worried about inflation uh, becoming a problem as a consequence of it when um, Democratic presidents want to spend a whole bunch more money. You know, that's not, you know, people people have lots of objections to, to um, big spending programs, but it's very uncommon to hear somebody say, well, you know, you're going to, you know, boost the consumer price index to levels that that would be that would be problematic. Um, and so, you know, our, our political system, I think, has has internalized, uh, even even if subconsciously, this idea that it's the Fed's it's the Fed's uh, responsibility. Um, it would be nice if fiscal policy and monetary policy were were pushing the economy in the same direction. Uh, right now, what the Fed needs to do is reduce the demand for goods and services in order to put downward pressure on prices. It would be nice if 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 fiscal policy uh, uh, could help out a little bit with that. Um, one thing fiscal policy can do that the Fed can't do is increase the supply uh, side capacity, increase the productive capacity of the economy. Might be nice if fiscal policy were were, were putting downward pressure pr- downward pressure on prices uh, in, in in that direction. You know, those things may be too much to hope for in our political system, and they may not kick in in a in a in a timely enough fashion to really matter. Um, and so I think. You know, while that would be nice, it's not the end of the world that it's not happening. But I think you should at least expect in an environment where prices are growing at an 8% annual rate, um, in an environment where inflation is so rapid that inflation-adjusted wages are falling at their fastest rate in four decades, in an environment where prices are growing so quickly that household income uh, at the median is dropping, not rising. You would hope that um, Congress and the president would at least adhere to the principle of do no harm, and uh, that's not that's not what's happening. Um, president Biden's decision to uh, forgive student loan debt um, is going to put thousands of dollars in the pockets of uh, millions of people, and. There's debate about the extent to which that's going to um, uh, affect inflation, but there's no serious argument that um, it won't have an impact on inflation. And you know, in 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 normal economic times, if prices are growing at a two percent annual rate, kind of roughly what the Fed wants, that would not be a major reason to object to student debt forgiveness. There would be lots of other reasons to object to student debt forgiveness, but that one would not be particularly compelling. 
at a time when prices are rising at eight percent and 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 where inflation is is um, is not uh, the inflationary situation is not getting better, uh, and where there's reason to be concerned that that we're going to have additional inflationary pressure in the months ahead. I think it is a major reason to object, um, among among others, to something like student debt cancellation. Uh, and so, to your question, this makes the Fed's job harder. The Fed has to the Fed has to counteract uh, uh, a larger um, imbalance between demand and supply as a consequence of student debt forgiveness. And why is that problematic? Because the more the Fed has to do, the greater the likelihood that the Fed accidentally causes a recession um, or the greater the likelihood, frankly, that the Fed intentionally causes uh, a recession, but one that is relatively more severe than it needed to be. I want to come back to this whole why the Fed is good and necessary thing in a second, but um, settle something for me. The Biden administration, I, I keep hearing, there's a, there seems to be a big debate out there. I know Jason Furman, uh, who's getting all sorts of strange new respect. I mean, I like the guy, but like from the right these days, um, uh, you're too young to remember, but strange new respect is a term. When Supreme Court justices moved left, the New York Times would start, some famous columnist or reporter said, so-and-so is enjoying a strange new respect um, on the left kind of thing. Anyway, um, uh, and again, I don't mean that as a criticism of Furman because it's the strange new respect from the right that's interesting now, but there's a debate out there. Um, which number do you look at, the year-on-year year or the month-to-month? Month? Biden likes this point to the month-to-month uh, in terms of inflation, saying, hey, he went up just a tiny little bit. Um, and critics, for obvious reasons, like to look at the year to year where it's like a big increase. Um, the analogy I've kind of u- I've used before um, is that it's, it's like if you're going through a heat wave and you're at 107 outside, like you were in Phoenix recently, and it drops to 105 you wouldn't say, well, a heat wave's over. <laughs> um, you know, uh, um, where do you come down? Which one's more important? Are they both important? Why do we care? They're definitely both important. Um, you know, I think the I think the kind of commentary debate, especially uh, when you're talking about politicians, you know, they're gonna they're they're gonna pick the one that is most favorable to them. Um, from from an economic perspective, the way that I think about it, you know, if you want to know. Um, what 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 is a what is a household in America experiencing? Uh, then I think you want to look at the year over year number, um, and there are reasons for that. You know, people people buy different things in July than they buy in November, and so also their salary tends to be constant for the, at least a year, right? I mean, so like at matters. for uh, yeah for for higher for higher paid salaried workers, that's definitely that's definitely the case. Um, but you know you you know you do your you do your holiday shopping in November, let's say, you know you want to know how much um, have prices grown between November of 2021 and November of 2022. Uh, the stuff you're buying in July is very different than what you're buying in November, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's just it, you know it, it, it's helpful. I think it's I think it's helpful to try and control for those kinds of seasonal patterns in, in, in household purchases and, 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 and therefore the, the comparison, you know, what are prices, um, 
uh, in the same month one year ago is a, is a, is a useful, useful way to look at it. I think if you want to know, you know, what is from a macroeconomic perspective, not from a household perspective, if you want to know what is happening to, uh, to, to prices in the economy, um, because the economy is changing so rapidly. I mean, we've been through, you know, since, since March of 2020, we've, we, we have, we have more economic change in every three or four month period than we typically have in every, you know, three or four year period, um, uh, outside of, of, of these pandemic times. And so if you want to know, you know, what's, what, what is the trajectory of inflation? Is our inflation problem getting better? Is our inflation problem getting worse? You know, then I think it is useful to look at the, at the month to month numbers. Um, and, uh, you know, we had a good month last month. Um, but when I look at the, but, but we had a really bad month the month before. And when I look at the, at the month to month numbers over, over the course of 2022, I see, um, uh, a situation where our inflation problem doesn't seem like it's getting worse, but it also doesn't seem like it's getting better. And underlying inflation is probably in the you know four to five percent range. That is um, more than double what it was prior to the pandemic. It's more than double the Fed's target. And so, if we haven't made progress in 2022. And we are uh, seeing inflation that uh, severe. We're we're in a bad we're in a bad place. And you know, over interpreting any one month's number is uh, an analytical mistake. Um, right, so let's before we get off of all of this stuff. Um, so you like the Fed? You like an independent Fed? I take that to be where you were coming from, and that's that's fine. That's nice. Uh, but, uh, no, uh, the cornerstone of prosperity for the last half century. Um, you know, the fact that it was created by Woodrow Wilson hurts its credibility. If you ask me, ghost of the machine and all that. Central banks were created by Woodrow Wilson, but the federal reserve act was signed by Woodrow Wilson. Yes. So if you were come down to the lowly second floor of AI and hang out with the constitutional studies type people, Adam White, that kind of thing, great hero, you know, one of the conversations that, that we like to have on the second floor is about how the Supreme court was never intended to be the only arbiter of what's constitutional, right? Uh, Congress used to have a vote. And if they questioned the constitutionality of a proposed piece of legislation that killed it, presidents refused to sign things, even that they, even policies that they agreed with, if they thought it was unconstitutional. Uh, and part of the reason why you don't want the Supreme court to be the only arbiter, I have no problem with it being the final arbiter. Right. But like it's not the only arbiter because there's some issues the Supreme Court will not touch for all sorts of like credibility and separations of powers issues. And you but that doesn't mean that because the Supreme Court won't touch something that their constitution doesn't apply. And the reason I bring this up is it's sort of it seems to me it's a little bit of an analogy to the Fed. We've gotten to this place where we think so long as the Supreme, we'll just kick all the questions down to the Supreme Court and let them decide if it's constitutional. And if we can get one past the hitter at the Supreme Court, it becomes automatically constitutional. The, it's not the same thing with the Fed, but we seem to have decided that inflation is the Fed's bag baby and nobody else's. And that's weird, right? It's sort of like, it is, it, is, it is sort of analogous to all the other ways in which Congress has outsourced its powers and responsibilities to 
you know, the administrative state or the executive branch or the courts or whatever. And if you didn't have the Fed and you just had the executive branch deciding on monetary policy, which I have to assume was sort of the founder's original idea, since the Fed doesn't come around to the beginning of the 20th century, um, you could point out the idiocy of this tapping on the brakes with one foot, pounding on the gas with the other foot kind of thing. Um, and so, again, I'm not forgetting rid of the Fed. I'm certainly not sort of a, you know, a Ron Paul guy who thinks it's, you know, staffed by lizard people. <laughs> but um, uh, am I wrong for thinking that this isn't a big part of the, I mean, th this is a legitimate problem that, that we have by thinking, oh, that's just the Fed's problem. Because then you're always going to have a sort of schizophrenic approach to economic policy where you're going to have one for fiscal and one for monetary. And they're going to be, if not necessarily at odds, then certainly not, not coordinated. Yeah, I don't, um, I guess I don't see it as a uh, problem for our constitutional system. No, no, that's fine. I, that's fine. I'm just talking about it. I made it as an analogy where you just sort of outsource certain responsibilities until you think you don't have any responsibility to deal with certain problems, even though you're elected to do what's best for America. Yeah, I think that's right. And not just say, oh, that's their problem. They'll clean it well, up. I, right? I, I agree with that. I mean, I, I, I think that, um, that, that is, that that is not the posture that Congress takes. Um, so, you know, unlike, I think a lot of, um, what happens, uh, in, in executive department agencies, Congress is actually pretty involved in the fed. I mean, Congress killed uh, the nomination of one of President Biden's um, uh, Fed Fed Governor nominees, which I, I think was the right thing to do. Congress has to afford, uh, you know uh, uh, approve of all the members of the Board of Governors. You know the president picks the Fed chair. The president does those nominees. This is not this is not stuff that happens in the deep state, so to speak. The Fed chair has to go up and answer questions uh, very regularly before Congress, um, and so you know I think. You know, we do have a problem with Congress outsourcing lots and lots of responsibilities to to executive agencies and then not providing oversight. I think I think the Fed actually gets a lot of oversight and um, by both the president and by and by and by Congress. Do I think it's a, a, a problem from from an economic perspective? I mean, it can be. Um, you know, I think it's uh, I think I think in a, in a in an environment like the one we had for four decades before the pandemic hit, it wasn't a problem because um, the Fed had succeeded in creating a, a, an economic environment characterized by low and stable inflation. And so even if um, uh, Congress or, or, or the president did something that was inflationary, the Fed was able to handle that without, without too big a problem. Um, Alan Greenspan in the 1990s, for example, uh, uh, tightened the stance of monetary policy, and we didn't have a recession. Um, he, he was able to successfully execute a tightening cycle like the one we're in now without without tipping the economy into recession. Um, I think uh, I think compared to what is always a, a good question. And so, um, yes, there are issues with Fed independence, but what would the world look like without Fed independence? Uh, and there, I think... Um, it, we would have uh, a situation where long-term prosperity really was under threat. Um, you know, look at look at what's happening kind of at the state level in some states. 
prices are, are, are really high, inflation is going up, and so the governor of California wants to give out more stimulus checks. Um, you know, the, the, the impulse of politicians and, and uh, uh, you know, what kind of bubbles up in our democratic system during times like this is to, is to help out. Uh, and that's, you know, in some sense, understandable and, and, and good, but, but actually the opposite of what the, of what the, of what the doctor ordered in order to, uh, you know, get prices under control. And again, the goal of getting prices under control isn't just because like in some abstract sense, it's important to have prices under control. The goal is to allow for uh, the purchasing power of wages to increase, not decrease. And the goal is to create a situation where um, long-term prosperity could be could be advanced by allowing for businesses to plan and things of this nature, um, we we saw what happened when uh, the Fed was too responsive to politics. You know, this idea of central bank independence was not um, was not understood when the Federal Reserve Act was signed. Uh, we've only really been in an era of central bank independence for the last several decades. Um, you know, true independence and. You know, you had President Nixon trying to boss the Fed chair around. Uh, there was this famous meeting um, of President Reagan and uh, the White House chief of staff um, and the Fed chair. And the chief of staff is trying to tell the Fed chair what to do with interest rates in the run up to the election. And President Reagan just sits there silently, <laughs> you know, probably knowing there was something <laughs> a little bit, a little bit, a little bit off with it. Uh, you know, now you have Joe Biden writing op-eds, you know, reiterating that uh, that the Fed um, is independent and, and trying to give the Fed, you know, space to, to do what's necessary. And I think that's I think that's 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 good. Um, if you've got if you've got uh, uh, the po- political branches of government trying to tell the Fed what to do, and if the Fed doesn't have the space to do what uh, what is um, what is appropriate, then that's that's just a major a major threat to to the the stability of the economy, a major threat to to wage growth, a major threat to income growth, a major threat to the business environment, et cetera, et cetera. So um, there certainly are issues with with central bank independence, uh, including the one you mentioned, which is that you can have situations like the one we're in now where where the Fed and uh, the president are pushing the economy in opposite directions, um, but I think I think the issues with with doing it the other way would be would be much much more severe. So, uh, just to be clear, because as some people may recall, you are actually in the same position as the late great Herb Stein, who was Richard Nixon's uh, chief economic advisor and who was installed in 1971 to basically enforce uh, wage and price controls. So when you are saying get prices under control, you do not mean it in the sense of price controls. When you say get prices under control, you're not saying in the terms of like price controls. You mean like price stability. Yes, price right? stability. Okay. Yes. I, just, I just didn't, you know, like I loved Herb and he was always very prickly. Because I was at AI in the 1990s when he was still the chair of the department. He was always very, very prickly about the whole wage and price controls thing. One of my it's favorite, like, one of my favorite uh, uh, anecdotes from history is that I think Donald Rumsfeld supervised that office. That wouldn't surprise. That sounds about right. Um, but uh, if 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 there was, we used to have these great brown bag lunches every Friday, and if ever 
someone giving a talk said something puckish about the wage and price control era of the Nixon administration, Herb would give a very stern look. We'll just put it that way. Um, well, we're seeing, and we're seeing a return to that in uh, possibly the UK, and, and we'll see it in, in parts of Europe as well, with uh, you know really, really troubling increases in, in, in energy prices that are faced by households. Um, you know, this is this is an example of why you want central bank independence. Um, the the Fed, uh, did, you know, the, I mean, we've also learned a lot about how to conduct monetary policy. So the Fed made plenty of mistakes in the 1970s. Um, uh, and um, in addition to that, the Fed didn't have, you know, the Fed, the Fed wasn't independent enough from politics and politics were playing a role in their in their decisions as well. And we had really, really, really bad inflation to the point where a Republican president was trying to you know, uh, uh, decide what wages and prices should be from from Mount Olympus. Um, and, you know, that's that's not what you want. Uh, and, and central bank independence helps to avoid situations like that. But even when you have central bank independence, um, uh, you know, as the UK has and, 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 and you know, the ECB is, is, is independent as well. Uh, you, know, you can still face situations where there's just enormous political pressure to to uh, impose price controls. Fortunately, we're not there in the United States, but I think that's certainly the direction that the UK is headed. So on this energy prices stuff, this is just one of these things I just don't understand how it would work. And I, I suppose I could read something that might explain it to me, but every time I try, I, I, I get nosebleeds. How would this... M- maximum price for oil thing work? Does that make any, like the West? Oh, yes, the oil price. Are you referring to the oil price cap? Yeah. How how how, how does that work on a global market? Explain that to me. Or does it not work on a global market? So uh, you this this gets us back to one of the compared, compared uh, to what problem? So we have a situation um, where uh, Western countries have decided they're not going to buy oil from Russia. Um, This is leading to uh, a a big increase in the price of oil. Russia is benefiting from that because not everybody has agreed not to buy oil from Russia. Um, And uh, there are countries that are going to Russia and they're saying, you know, here's the market price of oil. You know, we'll buy oil on the free market at that price or we'll buy oil from you at a considerable discount. Um, and Russia says, sure, we'll sell it to you, even though we're selling it to you below the market price. And even given that dynamic, the price of oil has gone up so high that Russia Russia is, is getting a lot of money. Um, Russia is using that money in part to finance the war in Ukraine. Uh, and so this is a, this is a, a bad situation. Um, to make matters worse, uh, at the end of 2022, there is scheduled to be an escalation of the um, sanctions on purchasing Russian oil. And there's some economists out there who, who think that this could push the price of a, of a, of a barrel of oil up into the, you know, three digits, maybe up to $200 a barrel, you know, much, much higher than, than, than what, what it is now. And that would be just a catastrophe for Western Europe. And it would be a huge problem for the United States um, and so how do you solve that problem? Uh, you know, you, you don't want to say, okay, you know, embargoes lifted um, because that allows for, you know, that creates a situation where 
households in, in, in Britain and households in France and households in the United States are buying Russian oil and contributing to uh, the war effort. You don't want to say, um, you know, absolute ban because uh, that uh, throws Europe into a deep recession, throws the U.S. into a recession, and you're still going to have China and India and, and, and some other countries buying Russian oil. So, you know, you're still going to have uh, oil revenues flowing into uh, Moscow, which can be used to finance the war. Uh, and so both of these options seem bad. What um, the uh, Treasury uh, Department uh, has, has, has come up with as a response to this situation and what it got uh, the G7 to agree to um, is uh, an export price cap. And so the way this works is that um, it is decided that Russia will be allowed to export oil and that, and that countries will be allowed to buy the oil. Um, but those oil uh, purchases will have a price that is just a little bit above the marginal cost of producing the oil. So if it costs Russia $25 to produce that barrel of oil, then the maximum price that can be charged is $27. So Russia still has some incentive to produce the oil, um, but you are really limiting the amount of revenue that's flowing into uh, Moscow to finance the war. And you are avoiding the kind of deep recession that could come with a huge, uh, uh, huge um, uh, price increase uh, due, to, due to the escalation um, of sanctions. Uh, this this is um, uh, you know not a perfect plan. Well, you know, first of all, how do you enforce this? Uh, you enforce it because in order to to export oil, you uh, often have to put it on a on a cargo ship and you know sail it to to a destination. In order to do that, um, you have to uh, buy insurance. Uh, you have to insure the ship, or or, or shipping companies won't won't um, won't won't do it. Uh, and those those insurance brokers are uh, primarily in the UK. They're they're in a couple of other Western European nations as, as well. And so those governments say, yeah, we won't we won't insure any ship that uh, is carrying oil to a destination that is not in compliance with the price cap. Um, this is not a perfect system. Uh, if Russia uh, is able to sell gas to uh, a country complying, I'm sorry, oil to a country that is complying with the price cap for twenty seven dollars, you know, China might say, "Well, we'll buy it for thirty five. Um, uh, but even if those kinds of, uh, even if you don't get everybody on board, even if some countries uh, are willing to to pay a higher price than the price cap. Um, this still puts substantial downward pressure on the price of oil. Russia is... If it works, right? I mean... Well, I think I, it, it's, it's hard to see how it, it wouldn't work. If you, if you, if you, if you mm -hmm. define work as everybody complies, it's not going to work. Um, mm -hmm. But if, if, if the global price of oil is, you know, say $100 a barrel, if the price cap is $27 a barrel, then uh, an unfriendly nation... Um, an unfriendly nation might say, okay, well, Russia, you're getting $27. We'll buy it for 35. That's a huge discount over the, over the world yeah, price. Yeah. Um, 
even though even though that country is not in compliance with the price cap, uh, it's still buying the oil for way below the world price. And so that still achieves, in part, the goal of limiting the revenue that flows into Moscow and in limiting the big increase in energy prices that are going to that are going to face um, households in, in Western Europe uh, uh, in, and to a lesser extent, the United States um, this uh, this winter um, when when this when the sanctions escalate. Uh, so, you know, I think I think it. I think it depends on what your definition of of, of work is, um, but I think it's uh, I think it's a uh, will be a um, a superior uh, situation to the one we would have where we just kind of didn't do this and and and, and waited this to what happened. If work is a binary work not work, then it's not. If it's effectiveness on a scale from zero to hundred and you get sixty five percent effective, that's better than not than the alternative. I, I get it. Okay, so. One last weird economics question for you, because I, you are a captive of this podcast at the moment. Uh, I was recently uh, driving someplace with the with the fair Jessica, my lovely bride, and somebody said something weird about inflation stuff, and it started a conversation between the two of us about whether or not there is anything a U.S. state could do to fight inflation in its state? Or is that simply impossible in a borderless internal market uh, on a common courtesy, currency? Not, not alleviate what makes inflation painful, right? But actually, like, fight inflation in this state. I think it would be difficult. Um, so, you know, you can, you know, kind of, you know, carve the world up into, um, into uh, products that, uh, that you can, you know, trade, um, and, 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 and goods and services that you can't. Right. So, you know, if I, if I am making tennis shoes, I can sell those tennis shoes, uh, here in Washington, I can ship those tennis shoes to Seattle. Um, if I am selling, you know, haircuts, I, I can basically only do that, um, where I live. Uh, and so, you know, you could imagine things that could be done to, you know, reduce the demand for haircuts or to increase the supply of haircuts. And that would have an effect on the price of haircuts. Um, uh, if you were to impose a, you know, 200% tax on haircuts, you know, people would get fewer haircuts that would, you know, lead to a reduction in, 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 in the price of haircuts, uh, at least none of the tax. Um, but the issue with, with, with inflation is that, it's 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 kind of a, a broad based uh, phenomenon that's driven by uh, that's not driven by the prices of any specific goods or services, uh, but that's instead um, a feature of of an economy as a whole. So the mistake that all the people who were talking about transitory inflation made was not understanding that. Um, so let's even say that uh, you know a state governor or a state legislature was able to reduce the prices of a bunch of particular goods or services in, 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 in the state, if people still have all this money in their pockets, they'll just go buy more of other stuff. And mm -hmm. so, you know, the prices of apples and oranges in the state will go down. That leaves people with more money because apples and oranges are cheaper. That will increase the demand for uh, carrots and potatoes the price of carrots and potatoes goes up as a consequence of that in, in the state. 
Um, and you're not really doing anything to affect the aggregate overall price level. And so, you know, the, the, this relates to the kind of broader economic debate we've been having for, for a while now. You know, the wrong thing to do uh, is to, you know, wait for computer chips to be produced, which will reduce the price of new and used cars, which will, you know, bring uh, the CPI down. Um, instead, what really needs to be done is to reduce uh, aggregate demand in the economy as a whole. You have to reduce the demand for goods and services in a holistic sense, um, and that is what will—that uh, is what will push. Um, that is what will put downward pressure on, on prices. So I lied when I said the last economic question. Friend of this podcast, uh, um, Dave Monson. Um, he has been fighting a heroic battle um, with the aid of um, our colleague Ramesh and some others to uh, convince me. And there are times where I'm convinced uh, that the thing we have to worry about more isn't inflation, but deflation, that we are heading for a deflationary crisis in this country, more likely than an inflationary crisis. And that you look at that, that, you know, the, future for us doesn't look like Weimar Germany. It looks like basically present day Japan. Um, where do you come down on that argument? I think it depends on, on the time horizon that you're, you're talking about. Um, you know, I, before the heat death of the sun. <laughs> yes. Yes. When the sun explodes, uh, there will be no more, uh, inflation by that time. Of course, you know, we, we, we should be, a. uh, Multiplanetary species, you know, far away from this solar system. Uh, I mean, One would hope. You know, really, actually, that lot of good it does getting to Mars if the sun goes. That's out. right. But actually, by that time, you know, if you if you believe in, in the theory of evolution, there probably won't be humans anymore. Will be will be something else. Uh, but uh, uh, to your question, you know, I think I think that uh, we are going to have inflation considerably above the Fed's two percent target. Uh, for for some time, um, uh, you know we you know there's there's better and worse. So right now, headline inflation is is running above eight percent. That's that's a real real problem. If we can get that down to four percent, that that'll really do a lot of good. Uh, it will mean that people's uh, inflation adjusted wages are growing and not falling. It'll mean that, or at least for more people's inflation adjusted wages will be growing, not falling. It'll be a boost to household income. Uh, it will allow businesses to plan. It will, you know, it will it will have all sorts of of, of good salutary effects. But four percent is still is still really high, and I think that we are looking for uh, we should be looking to a period of you know at least two years where we're going to have inflation above the above the Fed's target. Um, and so, in that sense, you know, we we should not be worried about uh, certainly about deflation. Um, you know, over over a longer time horizon, I think uh, the economy um, faces challenges uh, that um, that will lead to uh, you know a situation kind of similar to what we were in in twenty eighteen or twenty nineteen, um, uh, where. You know, longer-term interest rates are are relatively low. Um, where you know the Fed's efforts to stimulate the economy 
are more difficult than than they otherwise would be because the Fed keeps running into the 0% lower bound on nominal interest rates, uh, where there's an uh, imbalance between uh, uh, the amount of savings in the economy and, and investment opportunities um, that are that are deemed to be uh, of merit. Uh, and in that world, you know, it's hard to say what specifically the rate of inflation would be, but one and a half percent, two and a half percent, something like that, I think is 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 within the kind of plausible range of 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 of, of rates of inflation. Um, you know that is that is that is low inflation. Low inflation is what we should want. Uh, it is uh, you know it seems to me unlikely that the United States um, over the next you know five years is going to be in a situation where we actually have absolute price declines, where we have deflation. Uh, and if we are in a situation like that, then we need to think quite seriously about, um, you know, not just monetary policy, but also, but also fiscal policy. And, and uh, you know, there are, um, there are levers we can, we, we can pull. I mean, look, you know, go back, you know, go back in time to, you know, 2014. Um, we are six years out from the onset of the global financial crisis, uh, we have uh, uh, troublingly high uh, rates of unemployment. We have low inflation, and um, there is a growing consensus that the economy is in a period of secular stagnation. Uh, there's a growing consensus that we just can't get the economy to grow above one and a half percent annual rate or 2% annual rate, and that that problem is going to get worse and not get better. Well, you know, what happened? Um, the Fed kept interest rates low, which stimulated economic demand. The unemployment rate fell below 6% and the Fed didn't freak out. The unemployment rate fell below 5% and the Fed didn't freak out. The unemployment rate fell below 4%. And the Fed didn't freak out. The Fed allowed the economy to get hotter and hotter and hotter without without uh, uh, slamming on the brakes. Um, fiscal policy was stimulative in the sense that President Trump ran massive budget deficits. Um, fiscal policy also uh, contributed to uh, structural factors on the supply side of the economy by reducing the corporate tax rate, for example, um, and. We had a period where workforce participation rates were rising, where wages were growing at a faster rate than we had seen, uh, where there was upward pressure on interest rates, uh, and uh, and where uh, and where and where and where prices were were stable, but nobody was worried about about deflation. I think we can do that again. I think I think I think we've learned a lot about how the economy works from the episode. That kind of began with the financial crisis and ended with the pandemic, um, and I think that there are there are real lessons uh, lessons there that can be applied once we get to the other side of 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 of, of the current situation. Um, so, you know, low inflation would be my base case for the year twenty twenty seven. Um, deflation, prices falling, you know, that I think uh, uh, we we would have to deteriorate a lot. I think, as an economy to get to that point. All right. So I'm going to change gears on you a little bit. We're going to get to House of the Dragon. Don't worry. But um, we've had this conversation before. You wanted to do a whole podcast on it. At some point we will. 
about the social sciences and whether the social sciences are so full of themselves and whether oh yes I, cannot, I forgot about yeah that. we're not gonna do all of that right now because we I don't want to keep you too too long past time but buckle up listeners you know economists tend to be um, right the word you're looking for is right the, <laughs> no well that, how they're they're kind of arrogant about how they're the the only um, correct seriously scientific social science and everybody else or just or just serious or just serious yeah and you know. And sometimes when I hear economists talk that way, I think I think they have a point, but I don't think they realize that they're sort of basically saying they're the least dented can on the fifty percent off shelf. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and um, so I, I bring it up because, and I, I want to keep names out of it. And I know you're friends with lots of other economists, and you go to all these fancy meetings with the the globalists and the Davoisie and all this stuff. And so I don't want to get you disinvited from anything, but I had a friend the other day, I'll keep this broadly framed, who made this comment to me about how like, his name was Arthur Brooks. You could just say it. No, 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 no. That, um, you know, like the wall street journal basically took this position of if it whacked Larry Summers, it was, it was, all in a day's work. Like it is good to whack Larry Summers for years. Right. Mm -hmm. But then Larry Summers got pissed because he wasn't given a job in the Biden administration. So now he's been much more critical of the Biden administration. Uh, I've, there's famously similar theory about Paul Krugman. He thought he was going to get hired by the Clinton administration. The Clinton administration didn't hire him. And so for a while there, Paul Krugman was one of my favorite, which is like, I'm surprised my teeth aren't falling out of my mouth as I try to form these words. One of my favorite economics writers for a while in the late 90s, mid to late 90s was Paul Krugman. Was I mean, some of his stuff was really great. Totally. His, stuff, his stuff in Slate was terrific. Um, yeah, that's the stuff I'm thinking about for the most part. And and you hear other versions of this where like people's – where economists' arguments have a lot more to do with catty high school BS than just sort of like a viciously uh, rigorous – um, analysis of the numbers and the inputs and the outputs. How much of this do you think is actually going on out there? I mean, I, I think John Maynard Keynes did a lot of this kind of thing, right? <laughs> and and Karl Marx just, I mean, look, Karl Marx is one of the most important economists of the last 300 years. I don't think there's any disputing that. But he was also a nutty conspiracy theorist who like le vented a lot of grudges in his writing. So if you guys are such serious scientists, how come some of the most famous quote unquote scientists um, of the economic science uh, let themselves be given over by petty grievances and interpersonal rivalries? Uh, well, you know, people are people. I think that the uh, Wall Street Journal's treatment of uh, Larry Summers probably tells you more about the Wall Street Journal and, and, and less about Larry. There is a kind of proof is in the pudding type aspect to this. And so if you go back to February of 2021, the month before the American Rescue Plan was passed, there were there were a small number of economists who were uh, expressing substantial concern about the inflationary effects of of that law, uh, which at the time was a bill; it hadn't been hadn't been signed, hadn't been passed. Um, and Larry was one of them. I was also one of them, and I think we were I think we were we were proven right. And so you know, it could be that that Larry's uh, criticisms in January and February of 2021 were personally motivated and he just accidentally happened to be right. But, um, you know, there was, there was a good amount of analysis, I think, that, that kind of backed up 
that kind of backed up um, his uh, uh, his arguments. Um, and, you know, I think at least, I mean, there's still debate about this, whether or not the American Rescue Plan did, in fact, contribute meaningfully to inflation. But in my, in my, uh, you know, in my est- estimation, it, it did. Um, you know, I think this is a, I think this is a, I think what you point to is uh, something that that economists and economics needs to always be mindful of, and I think that uh, I think that um, economics is better at this. To go back to the kind of thirty thousand foot question we're talking about, I think economics is better at this than other social sciences, and part of the reason why it's better is because of its commitment to analytical rigor, its commitment to formal modeling, its commitment to uh, empirical statistical analysis, you know, not so much personal uh, petty grievances, you know, those kind of exist among, you know, the, the, the elite of, of any of any profession, I would think, you know, if you look, you know, resisting the kind of wholesale kind of groupthink uh, that, um, that afflicts you know lots of social science di- disciplines and, and 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 the humanities and and uh, and and it's become a real problem, I think um, on college on college campuses. You know, economics I think is um, trending in the wrong direction on these issues. But you know, if you're going to make an assertion as an economist, you still have to show your work. Um, it can't you know it can't it can't just be that you know. So for example, you know, say. Um, you know, on average, men earn more money than women. You know, you can say that this is a consequence of like naked sexism or misogyny or whatever. You know, I think that that in a lot of the social sciences and in some of the humanities, you know, you can kind of chin scratch and make that assertion. And, you know, people kind of agree with you. And, you know, you could point to anecdotes or you can point to historical episodes or kind of things of that nature. And that's a lot of what, you know, that you can kind of, you know, theorize you know, with a lot of a lot of you know verbiage, and that counts as as scholarship, basically because everybody agrees uh, with the underlying premise. In economics, you still uh, have to show your work. That leads to, I think, a more nuanced discussion. You know, yes, there's obviously sexism in the labor market. There's no question about that. Um, uh, but you know, what what drives that? Well, here's what my empirical estimates show. Oh, but are you, you know, controlling for the right variables or are you, you know, running the right regression specification? You know, if you do it this way, you get you get this other answer. And then you're starting to have a nuanced conversation. Well, maybe the maybe half of the gap between uh, male and female wages is due to, you know, these factors that that aren't related to sexism. And maybe the remaining uh, amount of the gap is how's that gap evolving over time? Things of this nature, and 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 that kind of commitment to uh, empiricism and that commitment to formalism, that commitment to showing your work, I think allows economics to be more useful to uh, the public policy process, more useful to the public debate, and I think goes some way to explaining why economists play a larger role in in public life than than other social scientists. Um, I'm concerned about the direction that economics is trending. I think economics is is, is moving in the in the wrong direction on on these issues. But part of what you would characterize, and and I uh, uh, and I may not characterize as um, as uh, a 
a posture of superiority, I think, I think uh, comes, uh, at least I wouldn't characterize that, you know, certainly there are economists who are, who are superior, uh, who, who behave in a superior sense and think of themselves as superior. But, uh, you know, I think, I think part of it comes from, uh, from that kind of, you know, ethos of, of more, uh, empirical and analytical rigor that, um, that really requires you to kick the tires on, on, on theories about how society works. Okay. So I was, I was, I want to be very clear to listeners that I was joking when I treated you as a soulless, uh, green eyed shade, uh, reductionist at the beginning. But, uh, let's just say that you're, you're, let's just sort of, we'll leave you out of it. The <laughs> description that you just did about eco- economics generally, I think is entirely valid descriptively about how economics is superior to other social sciences descriptively and retrospectively. This is the actual thing. These are the things that were going on in the economy. Uh, money is kind of like a, you know, uh, a barium God. thing that where you can x-ray it and you can see it lighting up how the system works and all. I get, I get all that. And, and part of this is my own longstanding view on these things. And part of it has been reinforced by Russ Roberts' new book, Wild Problems. We had, we had him on the podcast where he's basically a recovering economist, and, <laughs> which I accused him of that. And he pled guilty. So like, I'm not <laughs> speaking out of faith where he thinks that the, the sort of the rational calculus that is so endemic to economics misses so much of life. And so let me put it this way. While I want to listen to you and to my friend Dave Bonson and to other free market economist types about how we can get this economy growing again, we can get back to 4% growth. I want your ideas. I want to listen to it. I would just stipulate that if you actually had a profound religious reawakening in this country, we can debate what the specifics of the theology would be. But let's just say it was like prior uh, awakenings where the Protestant or as uh, our former AI scholar, Michael Novak might argue the Catholic work ethic was uh, reborn in this country. And these millions of people that our colleague Nick Everstadt talks about sitting on couches, not participating in the labor force. If all of a sudden work was exemplified and celebrated as the most valuable thing a person can do with their time for whatever reason, that would do far more for the economy than setting up various incentive structures through the tax code or whatever to get people to work. And I think that one of the problems that economics gets itself into is that it thinks all problems can be explained through economics um, or that economics provides the best solutions to all sorts of problems that really are only addressable at the margins of economics. There's a totalizing view of economics. And again, not to drag Marx into this, but like Marx had the most totalizing view of economics. It explained everything, right? I don't think that's where you come down. But uh, um, this is one of the real problems with, with, with economics. It's, it's very much, look at all these nails and we're the only ones with hammers. Yeah, well, it can be when misapplied. Um, so if you ask me to um, you know, read a passage of uh, Hamlet, and to and to describe to you what I thought Hamlet was was thinking and feeling, uh, the tools of economic analysis I think would not be particularly helpful um, in that in that endeavor. You would totally talk about his maximization of utility. <laughs> you could. I, I just know. Uh, it, but. <laughs> uh, 
you know, when when I go to when I go to mass on Sunday and I'm thinking about uh, uh, you know questions of of, of faith and, and, and morals and, and the way that I you know treat my family and, and conduct myself uh, in the world, I'm I'm not thinking about I'm not thinking of that in an economic framework, and 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 I probably shouldn't be. Um, I uh, I you know. I think that I think that it is. Um, having said that, I think that it is uh, uh, deceptively easy to downplay the role of um, economic forces in shaping public life. Uh, one of one of the most important things to happen in Asia in centuries has been the uh, dramatic reduction in extreme poverty that we that we have seen, uh, and that is due to economic liberalization in large part. Um, one of the most important things to happen in Europe in the last thousand years has been the Industrial Revolution, which was due to uh, economic forces um, in large part. Uh, Economic growth is um, a precursor to uh, political stability and social stability. Um, uh, an absence of economic growth ha- can bring down empires and countries, um, and a surplus of economic growth can 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 create the foundations for uh, for social harmony. Uh, this, I think, is pretty well understood um and 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 agreed upon uh you know the kind of famous hockey stick chart where you don't have economic growth for for you know uh, uh you know a few thousand years and then boom all of a sudden you know you see this this big increase in, in, in living standards in the 19th century you know that's that's a really important thing that happened in 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 in, in world history uh, you know i think that the i think that the mistake that economists who uh, enter into the the public debate often make is, is and this and this I think is also you know uh, a shortcoming of, of of how economists are trained uh, is not understanding that economics takes place within a uh, a broader social and cultural framework. Um, you know, I I think. Uh, uh, this actually relates, Jonah, to a lot of a lot of a lot of your writing. You know, a, a problem with the um, uh, you know kind of you know abstract uh, Enlightenment thinkers was uh, that you know the state of nature actually doesn't exist, <laughs> and and that's not a thing. That's not a real thing in the world, and um, that's also that's also true of markets. You know, markets exist in in, in social and cultural. Contexts and they behave very differently in 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 some cultures than others and in some periods of history than others and um, and I think economists who are participating in in the public debate you know often don't have an adequate uh, appreciation for that and for the way that norms and laws and 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 and, and culture and institutions. Uh, not only interact with markets, but the way in which markets kind of rest upon that foundation is is really really important. Um, I think uh, a, a second a second issue that I would that I would highlight is um, that 
you know, you can, you know, you can kind of treat money like, like, like barium, you know, flowing through your, <laughs> flowing through your, your, your body during a CAT scan. And that can tell you a lot about, about, you know, the, the, the physical health of your body. Um, but I think, I think that, uh, that, um, that economics, that I, I think that economists who, who, who enter the public debate need to have a, a, a better developed, uh, 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 telos. They need to have a, a, a better developed end, end goal. And that is, that is often, that is often missing. And so, you know, the, the discourse around economic issues, you know, is, is often, I think, very focused on the trees and not focused on the forest. Um, you know, we, I think, should care about, uh, I think, I think, I think, I think economists as individuals should care about virtue in society um, should see economic policy as a path to advance human flourishing in a sense that is much broader than, you know, income or workforce participation statistics or things of that nature. Um, and I think that, that if, uh, you know, if economists were, were better at, at, at seeing the big picture, it would help, I think, um, uh, to advance debate around these issues. I mean, so often we're, we're so often we're talking past each other in, in debates about economic policy and economic policy debates can kind of have the feel that you describe, which is, you know, you know, there are, you know, seven beans in this bag, but only five in this bag and seven is bigger than five, you know, because, because nobody's talking about goals. Um, you see this in all sorts of debates about economic policy. You know, on uh, you know how many how many jobs will the fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage kill? Oh well, you know I think it'll be five hundred thousand. Oh, but I think it'll be three hundred thousand. I mean, ultimately, you know, nobody stops to say, well, what's the goal of this policy? Um, if if we do the you know big child tax credit expansion, you know that'll keep some people out of the workforce. It'll it'll you know pull some people out of poverty. You know what what are we trying to do? Um, who are we trying to help? Uh, uh, you know, some policies hurt the poor and help the middle class. Um, some policies uh, hurt the middle class and help the poor. How do we how do we balance that? Um, economists have a lot to offer those conversations because um, they can bring empirical answers to important questions. Uh, but I think economists would be even even more helpful. Um, if they understood the context in which those empirical answers were were uh, uh, going to be applied uh, better than than many currently do. All right, so I don't want to keep you too long. I've already kept you too long, and Adam is apparently like very upset with me for constantly going over an hour. I thought you were the boss here. I, that's that's why I'm going over an hour. Um, but um, but you're a colleague, and I don't want to keep you forever. I, I, I was going to go all Deirdre McCloskey on you, but you kind of recovered in the second part of your answer. Because like, <laughs> uh, like I, I'm, I just simply do not consider the industrial revolution to be a fundamentally an economic event created by economists and economic thinking. I think it is downstream of a more radical change in culture that allowed the industrial revolution to happen. Um, it was the, it was a, more of a political revolution in some respects. insofar so far as it allowed that the political class for arguably one of the first times in human history agreed to allow innovation to take place, even though it threatened the powers that be's hold on power. And then once the innovative genie was out of the bottle, 
a lot of economic stuff fall behind. Um, anyway, we can have that argument another time. Very quickly, um, um, you you said cri- somewhat cryptically that a tweet of mine saying about game House of the Dragon was intriguing. Um, what did you mean by that? Are you watching it? Do you like it? I am watching it. I don't know if I like it. Yeah. I don't I think it's weird that the entire um drama of the show seems to be hinged on whether a woman can be queen. Uh mm-hmm. you know, I thought that we I mean, I guess this is said, you know, prior to Game of Thrones, but I don't think Cersei Lannister was confused on this point. Uh and it seems kind of weird to be Doing it again. It seems yeah. weird to be doing it again. Then it also just seems weird, you know, like the most famous woman of the world who <laughs> was just able to bring like, <laughs> you know, the entire, the entire, uh, 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 uh leaders of, 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 of every nation that, you know, could, could get a ticket to come together, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm referring to the, uh, Queen Elizabeth II's funeral. Uh, it also, you know, nothing seems to be happening uh, mm-hmm. in the show. Um, and I don't know, uh, you know, what I don't I, I guess I don't understand like what I, I don't I don't I don't really understand what I'm watching. Yeah, that's sort of how I feel. It's as I, as I put in my tweet, I, I, I think I like it, but it's it feels like it's been taxing on the runway for a really long time, yes. right? It's just sort of like, and you hear the engines sort of rev up for that second where you can feel like the wheels leaving the tarmac, and then it just kind of doesn't. But then I also don't know where the plane is flying to, right? I mean, like, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Like Game of Thrones, you knew, right? Somebody wanted to be on, you know, like one of the houses wanted to rule the Seven Kingdoms and sit on the Iron Throne, and there was going to be, like, conflict between them. <laughs> about about who would do that? Yeah, although I'll tell you, one of the reasons I was heartened by the first episode of House of the Dragon was that it reminded me a little bit of the first couple episodes of Game of Thrones. Insofar as it made the viewer work, like what is going on here? Who's doing what? You know, and I, I like shows that that require some patience and sort of delayed payoff in terms of paying attention, um, and when things start to click together. It's just I've been waiting for the click mm-hmm. for a while now. Mm-hmm. The show's like half over for the first season. And um, and I think that there's part of the problem is on the one hand, like I normally never do this, but you know how they have like these mini sort of documentaries mm-hmm. after the credits where they explain what you just watched. Normally, I just don't feel like I need to have mm-hmm. people explain to me what I just watched. But I was like, I'm curious what they think I just watched and what <laughs> I should be taking away from yeah. it. And... It was interesting. It was like the showrunners were saying, well, every season of Game of Thrones needs to have a wedding that goes wrong. <laughs> I was like, oh, man, why are you saying that out loud? You know, um, it's like um, you're sticking to some sort of formula. Yeah. And and there feels like this, 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 it's sort of like, um, remember when you were playing tag as a kid, how far you can get from base and you got started nervous or like when you're playing chess, how long you could take whether you can take your hand off the piece and, you know, if you weren't sure about your move, it feels like they're constantly worried about deviating too far from a formula yeah. while at the same time trying to do something very different. And I, 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 I'm worried. I'm worried. I mean, I have two, I have two principal concerns um, 
that I think the Star Wars franchise has fallen victim to, which is heartbreaking to me, that I think the Star Trek franchise has fallen victim to, that is heartbreaking to me, and that I now worry Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings will fall victim to, and that, that are worrying me. The first concern is reducing... Too much female empowerment? I know how you're talking about that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, is reducing these... Uh, these uh, stories to an aesthetic mm-hmm. that worries me. Uh, you know, Star Wars was was awesome for many reasons. One of those reasons was the aesthetic, and like it's great that you can make a movie about you know Han Solo and and you capture the aesthetic of of Star Wars, but but that's all you're capturing is the aesthetic, and I feel like that's also true of the Picard TV show, and I worry mm-hmm. that's true of of Lord of the Rings and. Game of Thrones as well, and the second worry I have is exactly the one you're 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 saying, which is that these are just formulaic. And you know, I like wrestled with a long time about why the J.J. Abrams Star Wars movies were so terrible, and I finally I think came to uh, what I found to be the most compelling explanation, which is that J.J. Abrams isn't talented enough to do anything other than to like repeat the formula that George Lucas used, and mm-hmm. maybe it's way too much to expect that. There will be, you know, somebody working in Hollywood in any given year who has that George Lucas level of talent, and maybe the best we can hope for is to is that is that um, uh, you know the Star Wars reboot will be formulaic, and and the best we can hope for is that the Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones reboots will be formulaic. But then, like, don't do them, you know, uh, and and that's and that's you know. So I feel like I'm you know living in the aesthetic of Game of Thrones and I feel like, you know, houses are intermarrying and, you know, siblings are fighting and, you know, maybe there's some incest. Um, and, and that all, you know, we all went through that before with the previous series, but it's not obvious to me that like anything is happening. Like, for, I don't know if Viserys is a good king. Do I need, should I be thinking of him as a good king? Should I be thinking of him as a bad king? What is he doing? You know, um, I, I don't, I don't have any, I don't have any. He's trying to keep it all together and he's failing. I think that's, I mean, I think the establishing thing with Viserys is in the first or second episode where they're trying to f- stop some rotting flesh from taking over his body. And I think the whole thing with him is that he is decaying and can't hold on to, to everything. Uh, but I want to, I want to. I don't get what he, like, what is he trying to keep together? I mean, this is my, this is my problem with Harry Potter is that like, the stakes were always so low in Harry Potter, right? <laughs> it was always like what happens at the school. And, you know, there were these implications that like Voldemort was going to conquer all of Europe or something like that. But, it, you know, it, it never, you know, nothing like that was ever, was ever established or clarified. And, you know, I think, I understand that Viserys has a brother who is like bummed out that he can't be king and, as a daughter who is, who was married to Queen Elizabeth in the who crown, was married to Queen Elizabeth like, in the crown, brings it all together. <laughs> exactly, um, and you know he's got a daughter who wants to be the queen. And, you know he's got like, a, but like, what are the the stakes in Game of Thrones? Were always very clear, um, and mm-hmm. I have no idea what this. What would happen if Viserys died tomorrow? Why would it matter? You know they haven't established any of. This. So, but I do want to push back on one thing. I agree with you that like the second season or third, whatever that last season of Picard was, was. Just hot garbage. Terrible. I mean, really bad. The first season was good. Third season or the final season was just terrible. But Strange New Worlds, Stranger Worlds, is good. which is the Chris, yeah. Christopher Pike one, is the most authentically Star Trek-y Star Trek product in decades. Yeah, I and I, I really like it. Um, 
I totally agree with that. Meanwhile, I really believe that Indiana Jones 4 is just going to break amazing new ground. Is there going to be a new Indiana Jones movie? Oh, yeah. With, with Harrison Ford at 79. No way. <laughs> yeah. Really? It's like, yeah, it's Indiana Jones and the lost bottle of Geritol or something. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just so worrisome well, that they're just going to like. I mean, five, I think. Do you, remember, do you remember at the end? Of, I guess it's five. Yeah. Remember at the yeah. end of Indiana Jones 4 when, who was it? Shia LaBeouf? I can never pronounce it. Shia name. LaBeouf, yeah. yeah. So yeah. they're in that church or something. I don't know. And, uh, and, and Harrison Ford's hat kind of blows and he picks it up and, and he's like moving to put it on Shia LaBeouf's head. And then he like reverses and puts it on his own head and walks out. You know, uh, that was awesome. And that indicated that they weren't going to hand the franchise off. And right. I thought that was actually like, you know, an act of artistic heroism on the part of, of the studio. Um, and that's where it should have ended. And that's where it should have ended. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But maybe this will be awesome. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Harrison Ford, Harrison Ford was good in the Star Wars reboot. He was. Um, but he played an old man. Yeah. You know, like who wasn't inclined to like do a lot of running around. But I guess he did some running around. Um, all right, my friend. Thank you for doing this in short notice. I appreciate it. Um I will go over all the ways you're wrong with Nick Eberstadt when I record with him tomorrow. Nick ah, will agree with me. And give you no right of response. <laughs> That's, that sounds appropriate. Uh, so appreciate it, and I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, sounds great. Good to see you. Okay, so Michael Strain has uh, has left the studio, and um, um, he finished making economic words go now. And, uh, and I want to clarify, I, I misattributed, or I missed... Uh, I distorted what Adam, you know, who's the new Caleb, uh, uh, his position is. We were talking about other podcast products down the road, and he had said, which I thought with more scorn and vitriol than apparently he intended, uh, uh, that time that overflow is my thing and it's part of my brand and I'm allowed to keep it, but we should have more discipline for the other niche podcasts, which is a fair point um, uh, and much more defensible proposition. Because, you know, sometimes it's like it's only about 40 minutes into these conversations where I start sort of like really getting jazzed about some thread that I want to pull on. And um, so it is what it is. My view, just for listeners who don't know, is that um, my view is, is if you like the podcast for 40 minutes, um, you're going to stick around for 20. There are some people who want, you know, some sort of smart brevity, sort of Axios style stuff, and that's fine. But if you like the conversation, you're going to stick with the conversation. And, and I do, and I say that not because my conversations are so awesome or anything like that. It's just the case with me. If there are podcasts that I'm enjoying listening to, um, I'm happy for the conversation to keep going. I mean, I'm not Joe, I'm not going to do sort of Joe Rogan three hour kind of things. But um, um, if I think it's a good conversation or if I think it's been an insufficiently good conversation that we need to go someplace else to make it one, I just sort of call an audible, so to speak, and, and go that way. On the substance of what we were all talking about, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think we should probably make it a primary focus of one of these podcasts and just debate, you know, the empiricism of economics versus, um, you know, the, the more holistic approach of other disciplines. 
Um, I think we can all agree that certain social sciences are a hot mess and, um, and economics without for all its flaws is, is superior in its utility at the very least than say, I don't know, sociology right now. But I don't think that was always the case. There was a time when sociologists were really, really valuable um, contributors to American discourse and American thought. And I, and I think, uh, you know, there's a point Yuval Levin makes a lot is like the country could really use more good conservative sociologists like, you know, the Daniel Bells and Robert Nisbets of the world um, rather than the sort of, you know, sociology as far as I can tell, is mostly a discipline to make social justice stuff sound pseudoscientific. Um, and I'm sure I'm being unfair to specific sociologists, um, because when I actually read serious sociologists, I still get a lot of stuff out of it. But most of the time in like magazine articles and newspaper articles, when I, when I read something from a sociologist, it basically reads like the paper just wanted somebody with a PhD to confirm the position that they already had. Um, anyway, I could go on. We really did have a wonderful time, um, on our retreat and, um, um, and, and as, as people should know by now, great things are happening at the dispatch. Uh, Ala Pundit has, has entered the building as has, uh, my friend Kevin Williamson. And, um, um, we're just getting started. So if you, um, haven't become a dispatch member, please consider it. Uh, we got, we've got a 30 day free trial. We'll put a link to it in the show notes for fans of Kevin Williamson. Um, and, uh, and you, there's still time to basically get on, if not the ground floor, then the first floor of what we think is going to be, um, a very exciting thing to get, um, get in on early. And we're incredibly grateful to our members who have been with us from the beginning and um, and to the listeners. So with that, I'll see you next time. No, you both. This is a podcast.